Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sunday, April 24th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. A federal judge strikes down the CDC's masking authority. We have to to separate out whether or not we mandate something uh, from whether or not we should be doing it anyway. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. He's a doctor and has hosted a medical television show for years. Now he's the man with President Trump's endorsement in the Pennsylvania Senate race. And he's battling criticism that he's not conservative enough. I feel like I've steadily held the same beliefs and President Trump wouldn't have endorsed me if I wasn't. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The mask came off, in some cases mid-flight, after a federal judge in Florida struck down the CDC's requirement to wear face coverings on airlines and on public transportation. In a 59-page ruling, Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell said while the CDC has a strong interest in combating the spread of COVID, the mask mandate exceeded statutory authority, failed to meet rulemaking requirements like public notice and comment, and adequately explain its decision. A couple of days later, the Biden administration said it would appeal, though litigation may last longer than the original extension of the mask mandate until the first week of May. Still, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki conceded this week litigation is not just about that two-week period. As we've noted from here, we expect there to be ups and downs in the pandemic, and we certainly want the CDC to continue to have this authority. In the meantime, nearly every major air carrier and many public transit systems have said passengers are now free to choose whether or not to wear a mask. Dr. Jerome Adams says he plans to keep his on in some situations. Dr. Adams was the U.S. Surgeon General during the Trump administration. Before that, he was the health commissioner in Indiana when former Vice President Mike Pence was governor. We have to, to separate out whether or not we mandate something uh, from whether or not we should be doing it anyway. And the judge's decision was really about whether or not the CDC had the authority to mandate that people wear masks when they're on public transportation. And the second important part of this is it's public transportation in general. There's a lot of focus on planes, especially Mm -hmm. with us coming out of spring break and people being frustrated about having to wear a mask on planes, flight attendants being frustrated about having to be the mask police. But we need to remember this is buses, This is trains. This is also subways. This is how many people, particularly people who um, don't have a lot of means, get back and forth to work every day, to school every day, and or um, to their doctor's appointments. 
and other places. And so um, what I would say to a patient of mine is that you need to understand your risk uh, if you're going into a situation where you're going to be using public transportation. Are you vaccinated? Are you boosted? Do you have um, uh, comorbidities? Are you someone who is in that higher risk category um, for a negative outcome if you get exposed to someone else who has COVID and who is unmasked in that situation? And if you are, then I encourage you to consider wearing a mask and particularly wearing a high quality mask, an N95 mask, which you can still go to CVS, Walgreens, most drugstores and ask them for one. And there are still many available for free um, in those locations um, through the government. You made an interesting point I wanted to follow up on. You, you say this isn't just about airlines. It's obviously about public transportation. Is there a difference between riding a bus and riding an airplane uh, with like air filtration, things like that? Well, there absolutely is. And so uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Another point of contention amongst people is whether or not it's safe to travel on airplanes. And there was a, uh, there was a study that came out that showed that the filtration systems on airplanes are quite good. They're quite good at circulating air and preventing spread of a uh, airborne disease like COVID. That said, uh, they only uh, are good when they're on. And in many cases, when these planes are sitting on the tarmac, they don't have the filtration systems on. I'm in Indianapolis. When I fly to Chicago, I spend more time sitting on the tarmac on either end than what I do actually flying in the air. And so I'm actually about to go to the airport and I'm gonna be wearing an N95 mask the entire time because you just don't know when those systems are on or when they're not. But to your point, that's planes. Uh, this, this ruling was about all public transportation. We don't have those types of filtration systems on subways, on buses, um, uh, on trains. And so people are gonna be at higher risk in those environments, even than they are on planes. Was it the right decision in, in your view for the CDC to extend this for another 15 days? I, I know they said they wanted to get more data. I think the question arises, what more data does the CDC need after more than two years of studying COVID-19 and how it spreads in, in these case rates. One of the things that's frustrating to people is to see the sausage get made in real time. We, we have not in our recent history had to react so immediately to a rapidly changing public health environment. I've talked to officials at the CDC and asked them that same question. And here's what they told me. We are seeing cases of BA2, the Omicron variant going up precipitously. We know that in the UK, um, they had a big bump and they're experiencing, right, experiencing it right now. And they're starting to see hospitalizations tick up. And we know that uh, based on the last several surges we've had, um, that we tend to follow behind, but duplicate um, what happens in the UK. So the CDC was saying, if we can wait two weeks, that will give us enough time to see if these rising cases actually turn into hospitalizations and start to overwhelm our system. And the idea was that in two weeks, they would actually have more information about this new variant, not about COVID in general, but really about whether or not this new variant was going to turn into um, what we saw with Delta and with Omicron, where cases overwhelmed our hospital system. But isn't there always going to be a new variant? There absolutely is going to be, uh, there are going to be new variants. And, and you see that back and forth between politicians, but also public health officials. What does it mean to live with the virus? Right. And uh, one of the, the, the concerns that I continue to have is that our under five-year-olds aren't eligible to be vaccinated yet. I'm very frustrated um, with the slow pace of getting answers 
to that, but but I put out a tweet um, that got over 10,000 um, uh, 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 likes, and it's not that I'm out there for likes, but it shows you that it resonated with people, where I said, look, right now, if you have a four-year-old child who has to ride the bus back and forth, and that four-year-old child is immunocompromised, has cystic fibrosis, has cancer, has asthma, like I did when I was growing up, they could be sitting on a bus next to someone who has full-blown COVID, not masked, and that individual is at risk. That's the real-world scenario that we have right now. We're having a debate amongst ourselves as to whether or not we want to inconvenience adults on public transportation and other people um, to protect uh, a minority of people who may be vulnerable. And there's no, there's never going to be a right answer to that question, but that's the, the push and the pull that we have. Right now, not everyone can protect themselves because those young people, we also don't have good fitting N95 masks for younger people, so they're going to continue to be at risk. Um, as a health equity um, advocate, I'm someone who says, look, if you don't feel like adults um, should be wearing masks and people should be made to wear masks on public transportation, then what are we going to do? Are we going to provide free Uber rides for people who are vulnerable and uh, have no other choice but to take public transportation? Are we going to uh, continue to promote vaccinations and boosters so that there's less of a chance that someone's spreading? The answer isn't that we, can't, that, that we do nothing and continue to put those people at risk, in my opinion. Is your view that that it, we're sort of overdue here for for the under five group to to get that clearance for for vaccinations and and I guess knowing what we know about COVID and, and its severity for for kids in that age group, um, how critical is that or important is that in, in sort of the overall response here to the pandemic? Well, and and that's another great question that that, that there's a lot of nuance in. We know that under five quite frankly, is much lower risk than any other category for COVID. So we, we got to own that. We got to admit that that's a lower risk category. But we also know that um, most kids don't die of anything. COVID is a top 10 cause of death in the past year. Uh, and so we, we don't want to dismiss immunocompromised young people by saying, and eh, most of them are, uh, are going to be fine. Um, uh, but I do think that we need to provide uh, some protection for those individuals if our approach to COVID is going to be everybody take care of themselves. Uh, we have to remember that if that's our approach, there are some people out there who can't take care of themselves. And so what are we going to do for them? That's the real question here. Um, and, and right now, those vaccines aren't available. And they're not going to be a magic bullet, just like masks aren't a magic bullet or nothing else that we've done is a magic bullet. Uh, we know that in the 5 to 11-year-old age range, only about one in four um, of those individuals are actually vaccinated. So everyone's not going to take advantage of it. But we know that the parents who are really worried because their child is immunocompromised um, will have an opportunity to get a vaccine at some point. And when they do, that makes me and many other people feel somewhat better about this approach of uh, everyone has to take care of themselves. As we talk about vaccines, um, obviously the CDC has recommended a second booster for older Americans. Do you anticipate the CDC, as we get into the summer, maybe the travel season, revising what it means to be fully vaccinated? Right now, it's just the, the initial dose, right? Those first two shots of the uh, mRNAs. Well, you know that uh, I'm someone who has been on the CDC for the last six months about revising that definition. Um, what I want people to understand, and I, I'll be, try to be quick about this, that when the vaccines first came out, we saw that they were would have benefit and uh, at two doses, and we knew that people were dying. So we wanted to get those vaccines out there for people so that they could have benefit. 
but we didn't have enough time at that point to see whether or not three doses were going to be better than two. We just knew that two doses were better than nothing. And so if we had been able to go back in time and say, hey, everybody, this is a three dose vaccine, just like the hepatitis vaccine, I think people would have bought into it and they would have gotten their three doses and we would have been fine. Unfortunately, we're in a place where people are saying, you told me to get two doses. Now you're telling me to get three. Now you're telling me to get four. They are frustrated. And I've continually said the CDC should say three doses is fully vaccinated. And some people are going to need a booster if they're immunocompromised or they want more protection. And then we'll fall into a routine where every fall, just like the flu, you get an update so that you can be prepared for that next season. That's what I think we should have done um, a long time ago. And that's what I think we should do. But I'm also going to tell you, I'm not optimistic that the CDC is going to move on this because I and other people have been putting pressure on them to do this for quite a while. And the science tells us right now that two doses doesn't give you um, a great protection against spread. It protects you against severe disease and hospitalization and death, but not against spread to the extent that three doses do. And they just haven't moved. Let me finish with this, because you obviously served in, in administrations, both at the state level. Obviously, you were the Surgeon General in the Trump administration. Um, so much of, of this has become political, right? We are sort of viewing these through a political prism, even though I know it's a public health issue. How much, in your experience, does sort of the political messaging, the political reality, how much the public may be willing to accept inform, influence the decisions that are being made from a public health standpoint. I say that only because, you know, we've heard from, you know, the White House just this week that we think that it should be the CDC, not judges that are making these types of determinations on what's legal and what's not as it relates to mandates. But but there is a political reality of all of this, isn't there? Well, absolutely. I often say to people, the biggest challenge we've had in this pandemic has been the politics. Uh, Let's be honest about this. Back in Um, February, March, April of 2020, um, you had two campaigns um, in the most contentious presidential election of all time define this issue around the pandemic. And let's, uh, again, being honest, one side shifted towards the everything's going to be okay, keep the economy open full steam ahead. And the other side said, you're all going to die if you don't elect us. And this has been politicized from the start, and it's frustrated the American people. When I get out into the field outside of Washington, D.C., and talk to people um, in middle America, um, in their communities, what they say is, hey, we just want to know how to keep ourselves safe, um, how to judge our own risk, and we want to figure out how to keep our communities open. Uh, I think if we'd had been able to have that conversation with people from the start, um, we'd be in a lot better place. But again, this was a election-defining issue, a wedge issue, that both sides used, I think, inappropriately. And it's it's proving darn hard to unring that bell. Yeah, I think we're seeing that now with, with sort of a lot of the confusion and in the messaging as well. Uh, I know you have been a part of uh, these decision trees before, so I appreciate your insight as we sort of work through the uh, latest round of decisions and decision-making that's going to have to happen here from uh, public officials. Dr. Adams, always a pleasure to talk to you. Be safe, well, be well, uh, be healthy.
When former President Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz of television fame, he said being on TV that long is a poll in and of itself, that people know him, believe him, and trust him. But Oz has been accused of not being conservative enough, even with that critical endorsement. His chief rival, at least in polling, David McCormick, has focused in on that during interviews and ads. The former CEO of a hedge fund called Bridgewater and former member of the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division told Fox News last week, The problem is Mehmet Oz is a, is a Hollywood liberal. McCormick questioned Oz's positions on abortion, transgender issues, guns, and fracking. And that's why I think you see uh, him lagging in the polls and you see me leading in the polls because uh, people see me as someone who's battle-tested, served as a combat vet, who's created jobs in Pennsylvania, and also someone who's a seventh-generation Pennsylvanian, has lived here and build a Mm -hmm. life here and have a family farm here. There are several other candidates running, businessman Jeff Bartos, political commentator and author Kathy Barnett, and businesswoman and former ambassador to Denmark, Carla Sands, to name a few. And Pennsylvania is still a swing state. Trump lost in 2020 by a little more than a point and won in 2016 by a little more than a point. Still, at least for primary purposes, a recent poll found 61 percent of Pennsylvania Republicans would be more likely to support a candidate endorsed by Trump. I began to realize more and more that the country's in crisis. Dr. Mehmet Oz is a Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate. And I share a deep concern that many others share that if we don't all start doing the best we can, to bring our country back to the place that it was when we were growing up. And it's not about going backwards, it's about going forwards, but keeping that same confidence and that same uh, meticulousness to, 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 and focus on what is important for our nation, then we'll lose our way even further. And I think I owe it to my kids, uh, as we all do, to make sure that they're given the same shiny baton that we were given as we came to adulthood. Talk to me about why Pennsylvania. I know you have a home in in New Jersey. I was reading you also have a home in New Hampshire and Florida. um, And you've obviously had some criticism over whether you are a Pennsylvanian. But talk to us about what sort of emotional connection you have, if any, to the state. Actually, I grew up just south of Philadelphia. I didn't know about the home in New Hampshire, but... (laughs) Oh, okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) But but I do have a home in Pennsylvania. And uh, I grew up in the mushroom capital of the world, just outside of Kennett Square. And my dad would always say, don't be a mushroom when you you grow up. And I think I feel that's what uh, we've been going through of late. You know, we're we're all sitting in the dark being fed manure and then getting canned at the end of it all. Um, But after growing up uh, south of Philly, I went to medical school at Penn. I went to business school at Wharton to study healthcare finance, actually, a topic we'll probably touch on. Uh, And then I did the best thing in my life. I met and married my wife, Lisa. We actually live in the home just outside of Philadelphia that we were married in. And I did spend some time um, in New Jersey because I was making television shows and and operating as well um, in Manhattan. But I've always been coming back to Pennsylvania. We moved back a few years ago. And... I feel very strongly that Pennsylvanians care much more about what I stand for than where I'm from anyway, but I am from Pennsylvania uh, area. And this is a, a, a part of the country that has very clear needs. And as someone who's decided to make a significant departure from my prior career, it was the best place where I thought my values were representative of those of the people of Pennsylvania. And uh, as President Trump said when he endorsed me, you know, I was, you know, I won't let people down because I know how to fight for what I believe is necessary. And when we were, you know, as a, my, my wife and I were contemplating entering into politics, that was a major issue because on my show, I did have to take on powerful interests at times. I, I went to war with big tech. I fought with big agrochemical companies, took on big pharma. You know, I, I, the U.S. government was the biggest opponent I would have. And I've got the scars to prove it. And I cannot be bought. 
And these are fundamental requirements of someone who's going to represent a, a state like Pennsylvania, because we have uh, we have lost more manufacturing jobs than any other state. So we have to take a strong position on trade. We have more energy than any state than except maybe Texas. And so that's a place we have to be bold and loud on. Um, we're ground zero for a lot of the issues happening in our school system, um, especially with values being taught that aren't reflective of the parents. Again, these are topics that will come up over and over again as they have been on the Senate campaign. But we're a bellwether state as well for the country. The battles fought here are going to be reflective of what happens in 2024's presidential election because we're a very evenly split state. We actually have more Democrats than Republicans, but many of the Democrats are conservative Democrats who want the old Democratic Party back. And if that party is not going to come back, then they want to have you know, insights into what the Republican Party will offer them. That's interesting because um, you, I, I know that there have been some some criticisms and even ads made featuring like comments that you've made on your show and other interviews about, you know, for example, like red flag laws having to do with the Second Amendment and abortion and claims that you're not conservative enough. Um, where are you, I guess, on Second Amendment issues and, and pro-choice versus pro-life? Have you shifted in your beliefs in recent years, or do you feel like you've sort of steadily held the same beliefs? I feel like I've steadily held the same beliefs, and President Trump wouldn't have endorsed me if I wasn't strongly pro-life and pro-Second Amendment, strong on the border on crime and many of these other issues. It's interesting to watch the ads being made against me. I was told before I entered the campaign that the most powerful ads would be the lies, the dishonest ones. And I said, why would they bother? I've made thousands of hours of television hosting my program. Why not just use those? And the person who was giving me advice said, well, if the, these fake ads that are running, if they were true, you wouldn't have run. And now I understand why they manufactured these stories. And you'll never actually see me talking to camera, saying the things they're claiming that I'm saying. And I hosted network television, so I'm going to have different opinions on the show. That is my job to let opponents voice their opinions and then you know let the audience see both sides of the argument that's what the first amendment is always been about and and yet you know it, just the fact that i helped you know, hosted a show on a red flag issue doesn't mean that i'm supportive of red flag laws uh, and it also interestingly backfires uh, on the attackers because when people actually try to figure out that i really say something that would make them concerned if they're you know, a strong Second Amendment advocate. Well, they'll say, well, geez, you know, Dr. Oz doesn't seem to have actually said anything that was bothersome. And plus, President Trump endorsed them, and Ted Nugent endorsed them, and Rick Perry, governor of Texas, endorsed them. These are all icons for, this, for the Second Amendment uh, protection. And why would they endorse him if he was actually saying things that were contrary to what they believe? These are the reasons I think I'm doing so well in the polls now, in part because it takes a while, but Pennsylvanians are smart people. And even if you're throwing $30 million of negative ads at them, which is what we're witnessing, most of it, by the way, coming from outside the state, uh, people get, you know, they get savvy to it. They start thinking, wait a minute, wait, let me see him actually say it with his own words. And they don't see that mm. ever. On that conservative front, some have said your rival, David McCormick, is more conservative, that Trump should have endorsed him. Um, I did see some, there's some mixed polling. It does look like he has been up in some polling. Do you think that's going to change moving forward because you have that Trump endorsement? Or do you see him remaining as like your main competitor through, through primary day? Without question, uh, President Trump's endorsement plays a huge role. In other surveys, outside surveys, 61% uh, of Republican voter, primary voters, uh, very much want to know what President Trump believes. And as they hear that he is supportive of me and he thinks that I'm the appropriate conservative candidate uh, to speak to 
uh, uh, four Pennsylvanians in the Senate, they will come over and they have been coming over. And we, there have been surveys showing even the early days after the endorsement, pretty significant movement in my direction. But it's not just David McCormick. There are other candidates for the Senate, uh, all of whom desired to have President Trump's endorsement. And David McCormick had probably the, the, the most aggressive campaign to get President Trump's endorsement. And the fact that he failed in that effort is a separate indictment that, that he isn't the conservative America first candidate that most Pennsylvanians desire as their Senate candidate in the general election. Um, and it sends also a message across the board to all the other candidates, many of whom are, are thoughtful, hard campaigning individuals who could also be uh, you know, uh, meaningful competitors. And that's starting to show now where there's sort of a clumping together of these other candidates as they start to gain some attention from the electorate. So I think you're going to see a lot more names coming up. Uh, the, you know, Jeff Bartos is of the world, Carla Sands is of the world, um, especially as we enter into the debate season. Talk to me a little bit about your shift on, on fracking, because you've now said it's an important component of energy independence. You, you weren't necessarily always a big fan. And I think even a poll last September found a slim majority of people in the state are not for fracking. I don't know if that's shifted now, given energy prices, but what's behind your shift? And is it really about energy independence? I haven't shifted on fracking. The, uh, again, uh, outside funded efforts in these advertisements took a article written by a collaborator of mine, who, which I did not author, and he's acknowledged that I didn't author it, uh, and tries to make hay out of it. But I've been pretty clear that this, the Green New Deal is a dishonest narrative. This is an important point, because this is what the far left side of the Democratic Party often does. They'll create a, a dishonest belief system and then make hay with it. They'll say, for example, that you know, COVID is going to kill you if you don't wear a mask, shut everything down, and never lift your head out of the sand again. And that wasn't true. It didn't make us safer. We paid a huge price for that being tolerated as a, uh, as, as a narrative that we couldn't push back on because they censored thought. With energy, it's the same reality. Every time we bring up uh, carbon-based energy of any sort, including natural gas, which is without question the best path forward, we're confronted with an ideological pushback, which is, no, the Green New Deal is the only way to go. If it's not renewable, we're going to bankrupt you. We're going to have activists come after you. We're going to have lawyers shut you down. We're going to have middle-level unelected government bureaucrats make rules that hinder you from producing gas, limiting permits to federal lands, which you and I own. These are all the, 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 the tools that are used by the left to shut down energy in this country. But if the truth is acknowledged, which is what I have been saying throughout the campaign, which is that the Green New Deal has not and will not be the path forward. It's not going to happen scientifically in the timelines outlined. Mm -hmm. Then we have to find a safe, smart, environmentally protective way of getting energy for ourselves in the world. Natural gas is that path forward. And if I could just regale you for two seconds, it's sort of remarkable because in our state of Pennsylvania, we have more natural gas than we could possibly use. We empower the world, or rather the country, for 200 years. We have enough oh. natural gas that we could export it to countries that are currently using not, you know, not clean sources. And I'll just give the stat right. to you. Just by doing that for 30 years, we could actually do the equivalent of electrifying every single vehicle in America, plus putting a solar panel on every roof, plus doubling wind energy production. So all of the renewable sources would be more than satisfied they're even their greatest potential just by us using natural gas, but we're not allowed to do it. So why would the Biden administration block us? 
They block us because they're trapped in this rigorous belief that only the Green New Deal can allow us to go forward. And I'm the kind of person, because of how I've been trained, fighting on the biggest stage there is network television, that I can articulate and push back on these false narratives. Again, the reason President Trump endorsed me included the fact that I was, as he said, smart, tough, will never let you down, but also I will win in November. If you win these ideologic arguments, if you push back on, on these culture war issues, then the average person starts to sit back and say, wait a minute now, if in fact the Green New Deal is not the path forward and I care about the environment, maybe natural gas is smart. Maybe that's why our carbon emissions are going down. Maybe that is the way we should be moving forward. And then all of a sudden, Republicans start sounding better and better and better. You sound very excited about that. So um, I, I look forward to hearing more about that. I'm sure you'll, you'll it sounds like you're going to focus a little bit on that on the campaign. Um, just a couple more for you. This is more of a foreign policy question because you are of Turkish descent and you're a dual citizen. Um, we know you still have ties to the country. I know you're, I think your mother is there um, and you'd like, you previously said you'd like to go visit her um, and take care of her. Um, and you'd previously said, if I'm not mistaken, that you'd be willing to give up some security clearances so that you could maintain this dual citizenship. I'm under the impression that simply by holding the office that a security clearance generally wouldn't be needed. What do you tell potential constituents about your Turkish citizenship and any concerns they might have over that? Have you heard of anybody have any concerns over that? These concerns are not raised. There is no security clearance issue whatsoever. It's a distraction, again, created by uh, my opponent in the Senate campaign. Um, and I believe I can love my mother and love my country, too. My mom has Alzheimer's. It's not so much that I have to visit her, although I do that, but uh, thank you. But I, but I have to actually help manage her care. And there is a benefit of having a Turkish citizenship because these are she lives in Turkey and these are oftentimes involved proceedings uh, in Turkey. That stated, uh, because I don't want this distraction uh, in the minds of any of our voters, I have pledged to give up the Turkish citizenship and only be a U.S. citizen if I'm elected to the U.S. Senate. Got it. Finally. You did note that most people in the state are Democrats. It, it's pretty evenly split, as you said, but there's a, a, a bit of a lean. So even if you're focused on the primary right now, are you paying attention to the Democrats you would face? Um, it does look like um, John Fetterman's the, the front runner there, yes? Fetterman is the front runner, and Fetterman uh, is a candidate who speaks to a lot of the beliefs of the far left side of the Democratic Party. For that reason, there's going to be a very clear contrast between me and him in the general election. And since he's been striking out at me in fundraising letters and commentary, it's pretty clear to me that he's concerned about me as the opponent. And I have very high name ID, 96%. Uh, Democrats watch my show and have for 13 years. Uh, there's some groups of uh, of Democratic uh, consortium who are natural allies. They like what I've been saying and they know who I am because they've been seeing me every single day in their, in their living room. So I think I'll fare well in the general election. I also believe I have the ability uh, to speak to issues that as Americans we can share uh, because we share values around those issues. The primacy of our kids that we love our kids more than anyone else. And we want to protect them and give them a better option and a better future. The, the issues around the role of science in our society, specifically with regard to energy policy and, and health issues around COVID. These are all good examples. In my city of Philadelphia, we have a mask mandate again. It just got lifted, thankfully, after a public outcry. But when Democrats make these, these decisions that they claim 
hypocritically are based on science, but they're actually based on political science. It's a problem. When you mix politics and medicine, you get politics. And we witnessed this with Fauci's actions, which, I, which is why I've called for his firing. It's very difficult for Democrats like Fetterman to defend Fauci because his uh, approach, which is a top, you know, one size fits all top down authoritarian management of American health failed. It just objectively did not do well. I'm a heart surgeon. If I have great ideas, but I don't use them correctly, and my patient doesn't do well, the family's not happy. In this case, I don't think the Democrats have the best ideas and they're not using them in the right way. That's for sure. They've lost the confidence of the American people. And so the reason I'm running, the reason I gave up a life that I I really did love hosting my show and operating you know, <laughs> to help people is because I have concerns shared by many Pennsylvanians and I believe people around the country that we are on the wrong path, but that the right path is there. It's not like we don't have an answer. We know exactly what we should do if we ask our people. They know what they need to do to make their lives work better. We need to either get out of their way or give them a few of the building blocks they're, they're crying for so they can lift themselves back up again. That's the job of government. Well, if you win the primary, I look forward to a lot of uh, medical analogies to replace the football analogies we often hear in politics, okay? <laughs> well, I did play football in college, but I, I try oh. not to use those analogies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Oz, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. God bless you. Take care. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, Congress is back and likely will get another big ask from President Biden to keep funding weapons for Ukraine. The Supreme Court also takes up arguments for the final time this term with a religious freedom challenge. And we will follow the latest on the pandemic as lawmakers stalemate over more money for that fight. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.